I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabel. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About carrot tasting boys. About finding purpose. About yucky tasting boys. About starving yourself. About vampires. About being a working class lady. About falling in love with the idea of somebody. About getting vengeance on your enemies. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This Halloween, we're going to discuss A Man of Taste by Sheer Glassman, which was recommended to us last Halloween season by Instagram follower Joanna Patinkis. And she's recommended quite a few books to us, or they have recommended quite a few books to us over these these moons we've spent together and so we were looking for some more short and sweet halloween stories and decided to take a bite out of this little snack isabel would you read the back of the book oh can't wait a man of taste an exploited working class woman in life nelly now wanders the earth as a vampire she's too good-hearted to feed from any but the worst of men but the worse a man's character the more terrible his blood tastes She's also terribly lonely. Can a bloody ghost be the answer to both her problems? All right. Well, aside from the plot of the story, I think one of the most significant things about this book, air quotes, is that it's a slim little, the story itself is 158 pages long. And I think I read it in... How do you have 158 pages? Sorry, I was looking at the... It starts on page 21, and then it wraps on page 158. That seems... I guess that's true. It's very short. (laughs) It's very short. It's very short. I don't know. It's only published online, so maybe these page numbers are actually corresponding to something in the digital framework. I don't understand computers. Maybe you could text your sister-in-law. Maybe this is something she's privy to. But yeah, I mean, it, it's got, it feels like it's 12 pages, and I'm pretty sure it is. It's a tight little, it's a tight little text. It's the fun size. Yeah, and it opens up with another paratextual element. I want you to say, it opens up with content warnings. And the content warnings would lead you to believe, at least in my case, I know everybody's different. First of all, I wish there were more, more people did content warnings in the front of their romance novels like this. Although this, this would make it sound a lot uh, more lascivious than it actually is. Agreed. Content warnings include blood is food slash blood play. Oh God, I just remembered something. Odd screen violence, including murder and non-consensual vampire transformation. Attempted sexual assault of a walk-on foiled by the protagonist and consensual sexual shenanigans, which I think was just put on there in there for fun. But I mean, since we're getting away from like having real cover diversity in romance, I think these content warnings in the front would be really helpful. I think that's a very elegant solve for the problem that you and I have been discussing about the covers for quite some time. At least one of them. Uh, So yeah, so A Man of Taste uh, is told from the cuddly third of Nellie the Vampire. One of the things that struck me about your reading of the back of the essay is that it talks about her being working class, and indeed she's working class, but it doesn't like – and this is a weird complaint to have for something that's like 12 pages long, 
But like you don't really spend a lot of time within any of these identities. Even the identity of like bloody ghost is very fleeting at the end of the story. Lightly sketched. Yeah, but I would not say that this text is ineffective by any means. This is a very like evocative, it was very character driven, and I was like shockingly invested in what was happening. I think I would say that I was also shockingly invested for the fun size nature of this bite size story how many how many different ways can we point out that it's small that relates to halloween candy purchasing i i I think that's like my i think we're spent yeah blood on your face spent yeah i like because it's such an interesting premise like it's so fascinating to watch a story be so premise driven where here's the thing she doesn't want to be a vampire she is one bad people taste bad good people taste good and nourishing which i thought was like whoa here's a discussion of morality sketched very lightly in very few pages that's super evocative and asks a lot of really interesting questions that i think are inherent in vampire tales, but this was explicit in a way that I was pretty impressed by, frankly. I think it says a lot about someone's relation, about, you know, the writer isn't here or whatever. But I do think it says a lot about a writer's relationship to vampires when they relate, like, what a vampire eats and how they, like, select foods. Because there are vampires who just eat whatever. They'll just, like, suck on cats. And there's vampires who, you know, true blood vampires that have their nice little blood substitute. There's the vampires from what we do in the shadows where he said like why do we like virgins how do i put this if you were going to eat a sandwich wouldn't you feel better knowing no one had fucked it (laughs) that's such a good line (laughs) it's such a good joke such a good movie but i'm like but now that i'm thinking through it like i I know that they're like in the in the canon right uh Mm -hmm. the younger the person is the better their blood tastes Mm-hmm. But there has I, I I can't recall anything that has had such a, a explicitly moralistic take on how people taste. Neither can I. I like there's the moral read of the vampire themselves, like Angel and Buffy only eats rats or like attacks bad people. I think we've seen that a lot. Like a marker of a good vampire is someone who only eats like rapists and criminals. And so it was interesting to see the correlation on the flip side of this and there's also this like evocative scene where Nellie is like haunting the gallows and eating newly deceased people who've been hung for crimes and she accidentally eats an innocent man and feels really bad even though he's already dead and I don't know that I've really read any vampire story where a vampire is consuming the recently dead so that was interesting yeah it would be nice if a woman could eat something delicious and not immediately feel guilty afterwards wouldn't it oh my god yes such a good point (laughs) but he tastes like carrots i remember that and i was like yeah carrots are delicious carrot kind of makes sense (laughs) too like if blood was gonna be delicious because it's wholesome what would delicious blood taste like probably carrot so she immediately feels guilty about it even though she has like no control you know and it's not like she's damning him or anything and so she this is so sad. So she sees a, a handsome soldier and she's she's hanging out on battlefields now eating the dead who die there. Um, and guess what, gang? 
you're way more likely to eat um, a bad person than a good person whenever you're exclusively eating men. And she's also, like, hanging out in parks and, like, trying to eat, like, attempted rapists and stuff. But she starts following this guy, and he's, like, a really good guy. He's a soldier, and he loves his family, and he's, like, writing them letters all the time or, like, sending them money. And then she's like, wow, I bet he tastes delicious. Um, and she becomes really invested in him as a person. And he becomes a whistleblower on um, some upper echelon military people who are, like, doing black market stuff. And so she realizes he's going to die soon, and she's like, you know what? I deserve something nice. And she follows them out. He has his throat slit. And she drinks his blood. And then something really interesting happens. And I feel like it is at this point decidedly the third act. When we have our hero, he's about to become articulate. And uh, <laughs> all of the like – like I would, I can't even say like all of the rules that were set because so little of the table is set. But enough stuff happens that I, I'm like – what. I just feel like this would have come up at some point. So he becomes a ghost, but is still, like, he's a ghost. He's a specific um, kind of ghost, though. From Jewish folklore. A dibuk? A dibbik. Dibbik. He becomes a dibbik. I remember, I want to look up and see if dibbiks are, like, embodied creatures or if they're vapor. I know that there's a dibbik movie, and I think the dibbik lived in, like, a box in that movie. Oh, yeah, it's a Dybbuk box. A Dybbuk is a malicious, possessing spirit believed to be the dislocated soul of a dead person. It suddenly leaves the host body once it's accomplished its goal, sometimes after being exercised. Oh, and he does talk about how he's going to possess other bodies. But he doesn't want to. He's basically possessed his own corpse. He is enjoying having his gaping neck wound licked. And he tastes like steak. Also makes sense. Um, although I would like to know how working class ye old Nelly had a big juicy steak. Well, the last supper that she had before she was unconsensually turned into a vampire was very expensive from the scientist who turned her because she was turned in a lab. By a scientist? Like, so much happens in these five pages. And we've talked about, like, different lifetimes she's led. And she's this... Uh, I think she's also one of those very special kind of heroines that I enjoy reading in romance that's just like a, truly like a, a regular woman. Like she's not like incredibly gifted in any particular way, but she's surviving um, and that's what occupies her thoughts rather than like some lofty goal or vision, right? She's just kind of living um, and trying to do it gently and goodly. But decides to treat herself to a little steak. Why not? And then he becomes consciousness because he has vengeance to seek. So he's become a Dybbuk. And uh, more than a Dybbuk, he decides to become her lover. While I have lots of questions about the corporeality of his ghost presence, like, you know, with something like this, you kind of just have to suspend disbelief, even if you're like, I'm not sure how this is working. Yeah, he just possessed his own corpse. He's a Dybbuk. He can possess any corpse, so he just stuck around in his own. But Dybbuks possess the living. They're like, that's part of what he says, are supposed to possess the living, but I'm not about to go invading another person's mind. And then she's like, is that what kind of ghost you are? I think so. In my people's folktales, the Dybbuk will take over somebody's body until a rabbi commands them to leave, but I don't want anything to do with that. So the idea 
that, like, I have a lot of questions about, like, how his decomposition is going to work out later, but, like, that's not what this story is invested in. So, like, that's what I'm bringing to the table, not what the table has on offer for me. So what was crazy is that she doesn't expect this thing to happen, that this ghost will arise, because that hasn't happened in any of her other experiences of eating dead folks. (laughs) So she's, like, going to town on his neck, and he's like, excuse me? (laughs) Hello? I kind of like the idea that that many people have had closure. Yeah, I think that's really nice. But what does it mean that like the only like one of two good people she's eaten or three or what? No, two. One of two good people she's eaten becomes a a vengeance ghost. Not only a vengeance ghost, but he seems really preoccupied with his widowed sister and his nephew. And so, like, that's part of his unfinished business. One of the things that's really nice about this is that she's been following him and, like, wants to be around him in his living state. And so then in his dead state, we kind of, we know that he likes dogs. So when he says very nicely, excuse me, what are you doing? (laughs) It was as funny as, like, that joke really landed, I think. And then became strangely intensely erotic, like, very quickly yeah so there's not a ton to talk about and i and i think once we get to like the end of this story i get a feeling you're it's gonna be your weirdest part so do you want to talk about sexiest part sure i so there's one sex scene and i will say for me the sexiest part was the kind of preamble to it that almost feels that i feel like the sensation of her like feeding on this man is is very sexy because it's like you know sensuous but it's also almost like masturbatory in its description it's very self indulgent it it's someone having a physical experience and being really conscientious of what it's doing for them physically rather than what it's like for the other person or to share something physical. And it's got all this beautiful imagery, her hair falling like water on either side of his gaping neck wound. It doesn't say gaping neck wound. That's just me. But And then how they kind of gently progress. Her hair splashed around his face as she bent over his neck and licked. His taste was like the juice that flows from the finest steak from when the fine, for, finest steak is first cut. Gratefully, she lapped at his slit throat and let her fingers roam across the smooth leather of his jacket before her fingers clutched him protectively. She felt like she hadn't eaten in years. No, she had felt like she'd never eaten at all. And I really enjoyed that. And I, and I was immediately like strikingly erotic, even though there's and I and I feel like there's something to be said for the texture of this very short text leading up to this climactic sex scene that something as not even benign, almost malignant sounding as that is is strikingly erotic in its first read. What was your sexiest part? Uh, I like in this sex scene, um, she. Once they, when she's decided to like pause consuming him and they begin to have sex, um, there's this lovely line about her straddling him and like the squeaking of his leather jacket underneath her hips. And like, it's very sensorial and like that, that's like a very strong image of sexy and spooky. So I was being titillated at both ends. And then it's just, like, weird enough where, you know, he's like, why am I getting stronger? And she's like, you finished dying? (laughs) Yeah. 
We're both very cold, she explained, to them, Mm -hmm. but not to each other. I also think, like, how does she know? (laughs) Great question. I mean, you just, like, gotta, gotta believe it. So, like, I thought, like, the move of this sex scene, as you said, very sensorial, very pleasurable, even in the stuff that, like, feels like it should be gross is written in such a way as to exemplify all of the things that are sexy about it. Like this is like the Brad Pitt version of that sexy stuff and in in vampire stuff. What do you mean by the the Brad Pitt version? When I think of Interview with a Vampire, not the book, the movie, I immediately think of like brooding Brad Pitt and like blood and wine and velvet. And like, it doesn't matter that he's killing people or fighting and like doing bad stuff. It's just like, it's sumptuous. It's evocative in that way. He was very guilty as well about his predilections. Yes, he was. It's weird because like, for me, it's I did not get like a ton of vampire from it. I got like a lot of ghost. Like she sounds like a ghost because she's got like super long white blonde hair and, and she wears a long gray dress and she's working class. Um, and I think you're right. There's something very like, there tends to be something very uh, upper crust about vampires canonically you know and so like and then they're even when you think about something like the lost boys where they weren't doing great for themselves but they like still looked very assertive and in control and she's never that she's never like a predator type she's never cool looking or you know particularly cool looking or anything and he's you know a dibbick but he is a dibbick in a leather jacket i suppose a ye old leather jacket And he's a whistleblower, like, get out of here. Ladies love whistleblowers. I think – and, and it really is like, you know, he gets on top of her and then his wound starts dripping into her mouth. And she says, everything was satisfied at once, her hunger, her quim, and her heart. Is this a, is this a book about um, having a food fetish? I don't know. It feels like the closest to that that we've ever read. I don't know. I mean, it's certainly about the ways one denies oneself when one views one's hunger as immoral or damaging, especially not damaging to self, but damaging to other. So I think your line about like, can a girl ever have something good without feeling bad? Like that really put this into a new kind of context for me. I I think, yeah, I was conscious of that. But I don't think the text is because I don't think the, the text would be making the like moral platitudes that it does about like who tastes good and who tastes like I don't think it would get all tangled up like that. Although I like the idea that this is actually about food (laughs) and that it's actually like if you just give in to like, you know, if you have what you want, you'll be you'll feel properly nourished and you'll be able to, I don't know, help a Dybbuk out with uh, their their future endeavors. Um, But I know what everyone's she answered him with a grin, revealing her bloody teeth. All right. I know what everyone's wondering. Weirdest part. Weirdest part. What is it? I'm. He ejaculates blood, and she very matter of factly, and she loves it, right? Because she's gonna. She finishes him off orally. She does. Asks for it specifically, and he's like, "Cool." Ejaculates blood, and she smiles with her big bloody teeth, and then she says, "Like she knows." 
She's like, oh, it's because of how you died. You were murdered, so now you ejaculate blood. Um, people who drown. She's very. She goes on to provide other examples. People who drown ejaculate water. People who die in fires ejaculate ash. Yeah, and I wanted to be like, continue the list. <laughs> I, too, had the same thought. I'm like, name all the other ways to die, though. Like what you ejaculate because of them. If you're killed by a horse, right? Like, a horse kicks you in the head. What do you ejaculate? <laughs> you ejaculate horses. I mean, you know, I'm just like... One long hoof shoots out, like, toothpaste. I'm so confused. Like, where are we going? Where did this come from? <laughs> I also like how it, what How does she know? Like, I know. And she's like, I can't imagine the context in which she's like encountered like a lot of ghost wiener. Yeah, she's been celibate for like a hundred years. So like also ghost wieners that are like actively ejaculating. Like I can suspend my disbelief to to imagine that there are ghosts wandering around naked. Because like, why the hell not? Okay, I'm there. But they're like just fucking coming. And, just, like, <laughs> and she was like, and I wonder if she even knows or if she just saw a ghost. The other day I was headed in to catch my flight in Midway Airport. It was 8 a.m. I was walking from the train to the plane and I saw a man just hanging out in the hallway uh, masturbating. So assuming she saw the ghost equivalent of that and she saw him finish and like a little of ash came out. How does she know he died in a fire? Such a good question. I guess because his wounds are still on his ghostly corporeal form. But, like, also a question. Also a question. Also, if you die of natural causes, like, you just, let's, you just die of an aneurysm. Yeah, what if you just die of an aneurysm? What do you ejaculate? It seems like you would ejaculate blood, but, like, I don't know. Maybe it's, like, ballooning veins. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, that's what if you die? Of, <laughs> if you die of cardiac arrest, do you just ejaculate vein plaque? <laughs> Yeah, like I have so many questions about how this works. This is hundred percent the place I got tripped up. If you if you die of dehydration, do you ejaculate sand? If you die chasing that paper, do you ejaculate gold coins? Great question. That was like my question about like Jacob Marley, like that ghost, if he were ejaculating, would it be coins? It kind of seems like it would be that seems right. <laughs> Just knocks out her teeth. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I didn't even think of the consequences of that. Hopefully, it gets you in the face, just cuts your eye. Yeah, just like so out. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> like it's like the other ones are weird enough because like it's also like the mechanics. Like it de- like blood is a liquid. Sea water is a liquid. Semen is a liquid. Ash. How is it to de- like? I just uh, <laughs> 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 Oh my god. So many questions from such a small line. Such a small line and it is. It's like I know it's a really short book. But it's we're talking about it a lot. But like to be fair, it probably takes up like 
8% of the text is that is that conversation. And it also like up to this point we've had this like perfectly like moody character study, sensual kind of story and then suddenly we're getting this like very strange bit of world building. It's weird to think like a ghost would have would be able to provide. So right, I'm like, oh, well he's a dibbic, he's just choosing to possess his own body. So like <laughs> it's like a ghost is ejaculate. You have to assume that this has been like dibbic rules this whole time that has led her to this like understanding because otherwise like would a ghost like a ghost doesn't have a corporeal form that can satiate her, right? And his ejaculate satiates her. Not only that, but implicit in the next couple of lines is it's because of how you died, she explained, and there's that line. And then he says, I guess you found a gold mine in me. <laughs> And then they laugh, and then it pauses, and then the credits roll over them. Totally. So it's like, but that means there's a futurity in this. Like, he'll be able to continue doing this. Yeah. It's not a one-time thing. Yeah. Even when he has a headache. Even when he's tired. I mean, he's the gold mine. Milking is also a uh, fetish, but that was not mentioned in the content warnings. But I think perhaps, perhaps this goes on to be a milking, such a blood milking situation. The ash milking situation is just like a fireplace bellows. Hopefully he'll find a former chimney sweep who's really into that. <laughs> I know. Now I'm worried about the other ghosts with the other ejaculates. And I'm like, is, are they... Are they getting treated nightly and rightly by someone who appreciates their very specific condition? But I think that's like, is it a weird part? Yeah, it's a really weird part. But I think like specifically it's that this like what was otherwise a very serious book kind of like has this real sense of humor and levity. And I'm like, I guess I should have read it that way before because she was invented by a mad scientist like it could have very easily had had this like story of a a typical sad vampire transformation right uh like brad pitt an interview with a vampire it doesn't choose to go that route and it goes with a like i immediately pictured reanimator uh that movie so like i should have i think i should have been more aware and i'll tell you what it's easy enough to reread it Yeah, I think what's really funny to me is like, I felt like I was in Bram Stoker's Dracula. And then suddenly I was in a parody Dracula. And I didn't know that I I didn't know that I'd switched. And so like this dissonance really struck me. Yeah, it's a it's a striking dissonance. But I'll tell you what Halloween comedy is kind of when the dissonance is most striking anyways, right? Also, I'm like fascinated that you have these like very vampire references that this is conjuring for you. And it was like, I did not have that experience reading this. I mean, I think like A, vampires have been on my mind. So like I've been going through my deep vampire catalog. I just started the, what's his face? He played Henry in the Tudors, Jonathan Reese Myers. Is that his name? Uh, he had this Dracula series in 2013. Yes, he did. He absolutely did. And <laughs> I sort of restarted that for like the vibe. And I read this while I was rewatching that. And so like 
different kinds of depictions of vampires have been on my brain pan. And like, this was a really interesting one for me. And like one that like was evoking a lot of different things. Even if she is more ghost, as you say. Yeah, she's more, she's more ghost. And I don't, I just thought of him as a ghost, I guess. But I, um, if someone gave me Leonard Maltin's movie book, and they were like, you have to find all the movies that Isabeau would enjoy. I would say, just point me to the titles where the main male character is wearing at least one leather accessory. <laughs> and I think I would find my way through it pretty quick for you. Put together a top 10. Yep. Pretty. I, I mean, you could put a top 20 together like that. Easy. Yeah. Tight 20. Yeah. I, it is so mind-blowing to me that I have never thought of the fact that you probably really like that 2014 Dracula series mm-hmm. with Jonathan Rees-Meyers. I am... Um, I just recently watched Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is one of my f- favorite movies. Very good. And I also watched another one of my favorite movies, Dracula Dead and Loving It. Mm, also great. And the, for the first time, I realized, like, oh, my God, people must have really hated Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula when it first came out because Dead and Loving It is very clearly make, poking very specific fun at that movie. It is very specific. The wig is a hat and stuff. But I I see, like, that's the thing. Like, I think I think about vampires, as you said, like, velvet and wine, but it's not really wine and, like, or, like, blade, like, mesh and, like, vinyl. Oh, I also recently rewatched Blade, and it is so much better than I remember as a teen. I'm so glad that I rewatched that. Hell yeah. Absolutely. Blade completely holds up. Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula has gotten better, I think, now that we've gotten some perspective. Like, I think it was a little too ahead of its time. I think that's super true. And, like, those two movies... No wonder we're talking about those two movies because those two movies have this, like, they take vampires seriously, but there is this real sense of, like, whimsicalness to them. F-F-C-B-S-D... It's interpreted through, like, the settings and the costumes and the fact that Carrie Elves is – oh, God, how do you say his last name? You would know. Carrie Elways? Wesley? Yeah. hmm He's in it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Keanu Reeves, Winona Ryder. I mean, it is just dripping. Keanu Reeves doing his silly-ass English accent. Gary Oldman. Also there. <laughs> And tight and wee little sunglasses. Oh my god, his sunglasses though, and like some of those shots and the weird fast forwards and like the weird moon stuff. Yes! Oh my gosh. A sumptuous delight. But yeah, it's like that like taking something really heavy and making it and having like a bit of levity about it. Steven Dorf. I'll just let that hang there. (laughs) If anything, maybe the blood ejaculate, is it the weirdest part? Yes. Is it the best part? Maybe. Maybe. I think that's what's groovy about, like, vampires and horror stuff in general. There are people who are, like, say horror movies were, like, too weird. Like, that's their review. Like, I remember that when, like, The Witch came out. Oh, whoa. What a throwback. But... (laughs) 
No, I was just like, how could you say that that movie's too weird when it is like so perfectly horrifying and like every single still of that everything and like that goat and like, oh my God. It's a technically perfect movie. But I think I remember I went to see it in theaters when it first premiered. I went to a midnight premiere for it. And, you know, they had like a Conjuring franchise trailer ahead of it and It Follows was coming out, which I'm pretty sure I saw the next weekend. What a time to be alive. Kids these days, they'll, they'll never know what that was like. Everyone in the theater was clearly like on the edge of their seats for like a jump scare and the relief never came. It was just this like prolonged scream. Yes. And <laughs> I think that's why people said it was weird because they're, they, we've become so accustomed to like a specific kind of rhythm and timbre in a horror film at that point that seeing something like The Witch was really – world-changing, and I think very influential because, yeah, now I would be like, oh, what, you can't, like, sit in a movie? Like, if someone (laughs) told me they thought, like, what are you, a child? (laughs) Get it together. Yeah, that's a a lot to think about. But I think, you know, horror allows allows you to have this discomfort. And I think it's, you know, I would love to read more romance that incorporates horror like this does in a really intentional and really true way. Like this is, this has some truly horrific elements, some true fear, even when like, you know, he's going to die and they take him out to the woods. Like, even though that's short, that built a lot of tension and had a lot of the like intense visuals, you wonder what's going to happen next. And I think horror and romance are actually like a better fit than I think a lot of people would think of because it's like intense good feeling and intense bad feeling, but your reasons for having them are both so deep in your psyche that like just feels like they're just like already collapsing in on each other. (laughs) I think that's exactly right. I think one of the things about horror and romance that I would like to see those elements, because I think mystery and romance are pretty entangled on parts of the Venn diagram and they borrow a lot from each other. There are a lot of romance writers who become mystery writers and I think vice versa. It's that like structural thing about those two. Right. And I think where horror and romance meet is the vibe, the tension, and the need to resolve and get into that, you know, id. That's right. It is that tension and need for resolution that they're both kind of trading on. So yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said here. And I think, you know, it's fun. I I loved this. Um, I loved also the fact that our main character... Uh, or our hero who exists for, like, all of four paragraphs is, like, a fully-fledged person, including his, like, uh, Judaism. Um, You pointed out how well-executed that is, and it really is. And I loved reading something where somebody could have a marginalized or racialized identity within a romance novel, and it's not, like, their whole deal. Even though we have so little about him, it still manages to be just a part of him, an important part, but not like the headline. It's not a very special project. It just like is the water we're swimming in, which was so nice. It was, And it was done in such a way as like such a simple reminder where it's like the rabbi has to cast out the Dybbuk, which is just a beautiful reminder where it's like lots of folklores besides Christianity have these kinds <laughs> of things. And it's like just because you know, Western culture has created a supremacy or a hierarchy of one kind, mostly 
Catholic, that there are other kinds and there are other ways that this, you know, spooky folklore gets in and that like, it was a lovely way, as you say, to make it a component constituent part of this character without it being like the headline. Yeah. Exactly. And I mean, like the character building is just so good. And I would love to read some more Sheer Glassman. And at the back of the book, she has some great, I haven't read them all, but some recommendations. Yeah. I wish people did content warnings, but also recommendations. Like if you liked my work, you'll like this other person. And I'm like, way to like spotlight someone else. Yeah, it pulls out like more like um, specific ones too. Like, did you like the ghost part of this? Mm hmm. Did you like a uh, romance between men and women? Are you interested in a story between like different between men or between women? Other people's vampire romances. Recommendations for Dibbicks and other people's romances. Like it's so good. It's so thoughtful. And it's just like it is. It's like a really great piece of short writing. And I think if I hadn't like once again like if I hadn't sat and talked with you about it, I would be like, uh, it's kind of like does like a sucker punch with the blood ejaculate there at the end. But then I'm like, I don't know. It's kind of the whole point. <laughs> like, That's probably why you read something like this. And it's also like the most ridiculous thing you could imagine if someone was like, oh, I'm writing a horror romance. Someone might be like, oh, so like everybody comes based on how they died. And they're like, that's a great idea. <laughs> yes, they do, actually. And I would like more of that. I think one of the things that you and I have discussed at length that this book really brought home for me is this idea of like swinging for the fences. What's great about the 70s and 80s romances is that they are just lush and heavy with id and craziness. And like sometimes the vibes don't match and the meaning behind the culture wars is just literally all over the place. It's like a Jackson Pollock. We don't know what we're playing with, but we're playing. And... This book felt more akin to that. Yes, 100%. Yes. <laughs> than some of the stuff where it feels like writers have become really self-conscious about what they have to say or like how yes. they have to hit their beats. And this feels very unconscious of those things and like distinctly uncaring of those things, which was lovely. It, it was lovely. And so up uh, for me, it's a whoa. <laughs> Ditto. Total woe. Total woe. And it's like, you know, go out, support an independent author, support queer authors, support stories with Jewish mythology and folklore in them, for goodness sake. And so, yeah, definitely. And it's so short. And you're, you got the content warnings from both us and the stories. Just, just go wild. Just get weird. Get this one. All right. With that. Loosen your stays. But never your principles. <laughs> Wooly guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womance and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. 
or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Romance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.